I'm Tony Gargan and welcome to the Presenting, Pitching and Public Speaking podcast. Hi, I'm Tony Gargan and welcome to the Presenting, Pitching and Public Speaking podcast. And on today's episode, we have something really, really special happening because I am privileged to be introducing to you and interviewing today someone who is a mentee of mine, but massively inspires me. Um, The man I'm about to introduce to you, I'm not going to take away from what he's currently doing, but it's something really exciting and really beneficial to other people. And we're going to talk about his public speaking journey and his story in general. So please, can you join me in welcoming the fabulous Tony Courtney Brown. Tony, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for sharing your day with us. Tell us a little bit about you and, and what you do. Right. Thank you, Tony. At the moment, I'm about to open a bioresonance clinic in Wimbledon. Now, for those who aren't aware of what bioresonance is, it's a form of healing the body without using medication. And it's based on the principles of quantum physics. So if I explain very briefly, um, all matter vibrates. We vibrate as people, the earth vibrates at a certain frequency. Now, when we're well, we're vibrating at the right level. And when we're not, we're not. So what bioresonance does is harmonize the frequencies within our bodies so that we operate at our best. Now, a lot of you might be familiar with things like X-rays or ultrasounds and MRIs. These all operate according to frequencies as well. If I take an everyday example, if you're standing in a car park and you're looking for your car and you can't find it, but you get your key fob out and you press it, then your car will light up and the doors will unlock. It won't do that to any of the other cars in the car park, just yours. And that's because your key fob and your car are attuned and aligned at the same frequency. And it's much the same with the body. So my story is that I was on an awful lot of medication for pain and somebody introduced me to bioresonance, which meant that I could ditch the pills that I was on for pain and I can now move freely and go to the gym and stay in shape without having to take these pills. Now my condition at the time revolved around a slip disc, arthritis and sciatica. I'd been taking some very heavy duty painkillers for six years. After having the bioresonance treatment, I was able to throw away those pills for that. Subsequently, I ended up on the floor one day, curled up in a ball, unable to wee. And my wife took me down to A&E. They had a look at me and said, hmm, looks like you've got a prostate issue here. Um, We'll organize some biopsies. So, They gave me some pills and said, go away and wait till you're called for the biopsy. Well, during that period, when I'd come off all the pills, I was having some trouble with withdrawal. So I went to see somebody who did colonic irrigation. An interesting experience, but that helped detox me and get all those chemicals out of my body. When I explained to her about the prostate issue as well, She said, why don't you go and try this bioresonance? So I did that. And after having a couple of sessions of bioresonance, 
the appointment came through for the first biopsy. The results of that were quite baffling for the consultant who said, I don't know what's going on, but we'll monitor it and come back for another one. So I had some more bioresonance treatments, went back and had a further biopsy. That time the consultant said, don't know what's happened, but it shrunk. The other good news is you haven't got cancer and I'm discharging you back to GP. So that's how I got into that. And that helped me so much. I want to help other people with that. I did a bit of research and I found that five and a half million people every day in this country take pills for either physical or mental illness. Huge amount. Now, if just some of those people can reduce that intake of pills, there'll be benefits in that for them also. There is so much in there already. And obviously, this podcast is about presenting, pitching and public speaking. And it takes a completely different angle because your public speaking and the way that we met one another, which I'll, I'll obviously share a little bit later on and we'll share that within the podcast interview is about you getting your message out there and what i find absolutely fascinating is your message is about bioresonance the importance of basically everyone knowing what it is and understanding how much it can help people but how few people actually know about it and you know from an honesty perspective for me until you and i met i'd never even heard of it i had no understanding of it at all um, and i suppose you come across it in a really kind of in a, in a, by a mistake as well. You know, it was, you stumbled across it when you've gone to see someone who was a practitioner in another area, I suppose. Um, so your message now is about sharing the importance of bioresonance, how it's dramatically changed your life um, and how it can help other people. But I think one of the things that we need to touch upon here is just how humble you are because you've faced some massive challenges in your life. You have, you know, overcome this, effectively what could be classed as an addiction to these painkillers which were the only things that were keeping you going stopping you from being in continual physical pain but you've had some major traumas in your life you've overcome some massive obstacles which is why I started by introducing Tony and saying how inspired I am by him also so you stumbled across bioresonance but you mentioned that you know what was it five and a half million people in the UK daily are taking medication both for mental and physical illnesses. Tell us a little bit about how you, because you've suffered from both. I know, you know, obviously we've spent a bit of time together. Um, I find your story so inspiring. So I think before we get onto the importance of public speaking and why I'm interviewing you and why I think your message is so important to be heard is a different angle to public speaking. Tell us a little bit about kind of how you came to, first of all, these physical and mental challenges and why you're so humble about it you know you just kind of you you seem to be the person who takes everything in their stride you just get on with it you know anyone who meets you for the first time and one of the things that I always say about Tony and you can already hear this to our listeners is he has a voice like velvet I could listen to Tony talk all day long and people often make assumptions from the way that people speak or you know you're, you're well spoken you you're very articulate in the way that you convey your 
message. So people might often make assumptions or judgments that, you know, well, life's been easy for Tony, or he's obviously from a really wealthy background, which is why he's able to buy these bioresonance machines, which let's be honest, uh, you know, they cost you a, a significant amount of money for your benefit and to help other people. So tell us a little bit about your background and how actually assumptions aren't always necessarily the case to be true. Um, my background, I suppose, is it's weird or a bit mixed up by any standards. Um, I'm Afro-Caribbean by descent. Both my parents are from Jamaica. And for the first six years of my life, I didn't know them. For the first year of my life, I went through a number of foster parents, which of course I can't remember at that age. But then I was settled from about the age of one with some Dutch foster parents, and I stayed with them until I was six. Had a wonderful time growing up with them, um, and I had a couple of foster brothers, and it was a wonderfully happy time. Grew up on a flower nursery initially. So when I was about two and a half, one of my first memories is standing up and seeing just a whole field of crocuses and daffodils stretching into the distance. And it was just magnificent, and it was a wonderful way to grow up. Then, when I was about five or six, I started school. And I was coming back from school one day, coming down the road in Bristol, which is where we lived at the time, and people started shouting the N-word at me and throwing stones at me. Now, I had no idea what, what all this was about. And then I actually looked at myself and I thought, I look different. Now, might sound a bit strange, but then I went back home to my foster parents and I looked at them and I looked at me and I thought, they're a different colour. So I ran a bath, got in the bath and got something called Vim, which is an old scouring product, don't know if people still have that now, and a scouring brush and started scrubbing myself, trying to get the colour off. My foster mother came in and said, what on earth are you doing? And I said, I've got to get this off, I, I need to look like you do. And she made me wash it all off, gave me a big hug and said, you will never look the same, but it doesn't matter what colour people are, it's what they've got inside, and you're as good as anybody else, and those people who are shouting things are just idiots. Ignore them. And that was her way of dealing with it, and she was wonderful. Then when I was six, my parents um, wanted me back, so to speak, and they purchased a house in Northampton, and I went back to live with them. But to me, they were complete strangers. I didn't understand them, they didn't understand me. Um, my dad had quite a pronounced West Indian accent, and I couldn't understand most of what he said, but his response to my saying, sorry, what was that again, is to hit me. And he had huge expectations with regard to my fulfilling what he was not able to do. He came over in the 50s from Jamaica, where he'd had a really brutal background. He used to have to run to school three miles on his bare feet every day. But from that, he got a scholarship to go to a technical college, then to Toronto University, and to Nottingham University over here to study chemistry and agriculture. However, from there, he could not get a job doing anything apart from being a guard on the railways, and that no doubt frustrated him enormously. He then got a job selling vacuum cleaners and um, 
I think that inside he was just so totally frustrated at having all this potential which was squashed and being of the Windrush generation, he experienced all the can't get housing, can't get jobs, no dogs, no black, no Irish. So that instilled in him, I think, an ambition that was impossible to put out. Um, and from that point of view, I, I have to give him the utmost respect. I don't know how he carried on sometimes. Eventually, he hit upon an idea of setting up a travel agency. Well, firstly, it was a West Indian club for people of West Indian origin in Northampton to congregate. And they could play dominoes, have a drink. Um, he bought jukeboxes so that they could play West Indian music and do the cooking there and selling the food. And it was a magnet for West Indian people from all around the area. From that, he hit upon an idea of a travel agency. I don't know how he did that, but it just sort of came to him. And he thought, if I can do charter flights back to the Caribbean for these people, it will be a lot cheaper than them going to British Airways or anybody else. And somehow he brokered some deals with a number of airlines, British Airways, Air, British Airlines, Air France, and chartered whole flights, whole planes, and filled them up with people who wanted to go home for holidays at a fraction of the cost of commercial flights. He made a huge amount of money out of this very quickly, and things took off for him from there. But while things got better for him that way, my parents' marriage was a complete nightmare. Uh, they fought a lot, and I'd witnessed this an awful lot. He had mistresses all over the place. It was diabolical. They should never have been together. During this time as well, he told me that I was going to be a world-class lawyer and go to Cambridge University, and that anything less than that was failure. Well, huge expectations. If my school reports came back and I wasn't top of the class, he was furious. And that happened quite a few times because I just couldn't do it. Then I had to take the 11 plus and I failed. Well, that was it for him. I was written off. Um, he said, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up at the top of a tower block married to a white woman and you'll have 10 kids. Now, in his eyes, that's the worst possible situation I could find myself in. But that's how his mind worked. That was his mentality. Well, he used some of the enormous wealth that he'd generated from the charter business and sent me to a prep school in Northampton, and then from there to a minor public school, where initially I did very well, but then I kind of lost my mojo and my results started to go down and down and I became depressed. While I was there as well, I was the only black kid in the school, so I was racially harassed, bullied, and had all kinds of things happen, which happened to a lot of black people in that situation. What age? When I was about 15, Sorry. this was between the, by this time I was 13 when I went to that school and the academic success was great for the first two years till I was about 15, although I was coping with the bullying at the same time, which I managed to 
do for a while. And then I kind of lost it. Um, and I started to become depressed and I couldn't sleep. And I was put on antidepressants at the age of 15 and things to help me sleep. That was the start of my experience of antidepressants and sleeping tablets, which then continued for the next 40 or more years without a break. Wow. Um, and I think what happened is that it became so normal, I didn't even realize that that was it. That was part of my routine. It just happened every day for the next 40 odd years after that. Different types of antidepressants. So it's eventually my... Sorry, so it's from a really young age, you've effectively been medicated, experienced, some horrific things, you know, um, it must have felt quite solitary and quite, you must have felt quite alone being in, you know, a school where you were the only black child facing this bullying and harassment, struggling. Did you get much support from your parents at that age or were you just kind of left to your own devices? No, my, my parents' attitude was, I think the first time I was beaten up at primary school and I came home, bleeding and my dad smacked me up a bit more and said now get out and beat the bully up but again that's his reaction to anything is get up fight back which is great on one hand but on the other hand it has negative negative um sort of results as well and especially if you can't beat that bully it's going to happen again at school his his whole thing was just sort it out, beat them up, stand on your own two feet, stop whining. That was pretty much his response to everything. And my mother's was pretty much the same also. Now what happened around the age of 15 or so was quite weird. My parents had built this wonderful house outside Northampton with the money from the travel agency and the club, which had a swimming pool and a tennis court. And I went back the end of the term to find the house locked up and padlocked and I didn't understand what was going on so I thought I don't know where my parents are either so I went to a phone box I don't know if any of you remember what <laughs> phone boxes are those red things for a moment <laughs> and um, in those days you had to remember people's phone numbers and luckily I remember my best friend's phone number and I rang and said, I don't know what's going on. I said, I can't get in the house. I don't know where my parents are. And he said, just stay there. I said, I'll get my mum. And she came on the phone and said, stay where you are. I'll come and get you. And they took me into their house and they let me stay there for the duration of the rest of my education when I wasn't at school. Now, I had to go back to school at the beginning of the following term and it's a fee-paying school, and I didn't know where my parents were still, and I had no fees to pay. Prior to that, being the only black kid in the school, I was also the only kid who paid his fees in cash. And that was um, because my dad would run his business in such a way that his money was mostly untraceable. So I would go at the beginning of every term with a big wad of cash and pay the bursar and put what was left in my own pocket, try and 
have some fun with while I was at school. However, this time I didn't have any money for that. So as soon as I got back to the school, I went to the headmaster, explained what happened. And bless him, he said, just keep your head down, do your work, and you can stay here for the rest of your education. He was an amazing He let me stay there for two years free um, to finish my education. And he died last year. Uh, He had Alzheimer's and I went to his memorial and spoke to his widow and his family last year and thanked them for everything that they had done for me. But he was a remarkable man. Wow. So at the age of 15, you turned up home, all locked up, couldn't find your parents. You then effectively relied on the help and support of strangers. And I think that's really important is having a network of people around you. You know, a friend and a friend's family member took you in, let them live with, let, let you live with them. Your teachers, your headmaster, who obviously you, you speak so highly of, allowed you to stay in a fee-paying school completely free of charge. Like, what... I actually can't fathom this, that, you know, how long was it until you seen your parents? Where had they gone? You know, did they get in touch with you? You know, I feel like this needs some clarity. <laughs> well, I had gone back to the school. Um, I'd been there about two or three weeks and somebody came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think that's your mum parked in the car park. And I went out and I Looked and said, "Where the hell have you been? What what did you expect me to do?" Um, as usual, she didn't really answer. So I said, "Well, what what are you doing here?" Oh, I just came to see how you were. So I said, "Well, you know, I'm staying with friends and so on, but what's going to happen in the holidays? Where are you living? Can I come and stay with you?" And she said, "No, it's not convenient." So I luckily my friends parents said it's all right you can stay with us then she disappeared and i found out that um after my parents had separated and left the house that they subsequently divorced and that she had set a private detective on the trail of my father to gather evidence for the divorce So he'd followed him from mistress to mistress, taking photos and gathering evidence, which was then presented in the divorce courts. So they got divorced, and now now you couldn't make this bit up. My mother then ended up marrying the private detective who she set on the case of my dad. Oh, the private word. I feel like your your life needs to be turned into a book or a film because I mean we haven't even got to the detail yet of why you do what you do the fact that you are speaking up and standing out but you already you know you face so many challenges that you effectively shouldn't be living the life that you're living you shouldn't be you know theoretically the person who is inspiring and helping others would you say having so many of these challenges so early on you know and you talk about them so openly and so freely now you talk about them you know without masses of emotion which at the time it must have been horrific for you it really must have been the most difficult thing you know 
would you say that having faced all of these challenges has made you a stronger person, has made you the person that you are today? I think most definitely, um, which is why ironically, my parents' attitude of, okay, let's toughen the little brat up with, it wasn't even tough love, it was just tough, <laughs> um, had an impact which was making me rely on myself an awful lot um, and find ways of doing things and ways of surviving that I probably wouldn't have been able to find had I not gone through some of those hardships in the beginning. Mm. Um, I, th I think that, yeah, ironically, those things did toughen me up and help me get through some difficult things. So at that point, when you were kind of in your teenage years going through some really tough times, were you the type of person to speak up? Were you the type of person to open up to others? You know, we talk about communication a lot in, in the episodes of this podcast. Were you openly and freely communicating with people or did you keep that all inside? I think that sort of like most teenage boys, I was putting on a front, bravado, you know, oh yeah, it doesn't matter, doesn't touch me, I'm okay. Um, but inside, yes, it did touch me, it did hurt. And I think that that's what probably messed me up a whole lot more, was keeping up this front of being, I'm okay, I'm hard enough, I can take anything, whilst inside it's messing me up which then meant having to increase the dosage of the medication to try and get through things, whereas it's really just masking what's happening internally. Again, ironically, as a result of that, I ended up going to, I didn't go to Cambridge, <laughs> let my dad down totally on that one, and I didn't do law. I ended up at Northeast London Polytechnic doing psychology. And looking back, I think that the psychology thing made perfect sense. You know, I was trying to sort my own head out and think, well, why does all this stuff happen? Why does life work like this? Blah, 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 blah. And I thought that that would help. The funny thing is that I was always crap at maths. And I didn't get my maths O level until the sixth attempt. But to get into this course... <laughs> To get into this course, you needed a maths O level. But I got it at the sixth attempt. And so I got onto the course. But silly me, didn't understand at that time the difference between a Bachelor of Arts degree and a Bachelor of Science. And what I'd actually signed up for was a Bachelor of Science, which was more maths statistics. <laughs> and, and stuff that I really am no good at whatsoever. Um, so that, that was just, you know, total irony. I don't know how that happened, but there you go. <laughs> that also highlights another one of the traits that we see in you throughout the whole interview so far, which is determination and tenacity. Many people will give up, you know, they want to do this course, or they failed it, so they'll do it again, they'll take a second attempt at it. But it's very rare that you will hear of people going through something in you know, six attempts before you got to where you needed to be. And I think that seems to be a bit of a thread running all of the way through this drive and this tenacity. All of these things thrown at you could have been the things that stopped you from doing what you were doing. 
led you down the wrong path. You know, you theoretically shouldn't be the person that you are today. So where would you say we've also seen that determination elsewhere in your life? Um, I think probably when it came to doing the finals of the psychology course, where you had to do a three-hour statistics unseen paper, and that was horrific. I could not understand what was happening in the statistics lectures, and one of my flatmates, um, bless him, said, Look, I've got an idea how we can help with this. So after classes, he'd say, go and get some beers. So I'd go and get about six cans of special brew. <laughs> and <laughs> for the uninitiated, special brew is pretty awful stuff. <laughs> And we <laughs> and and he would take me through the equations one line at a time, you know. And some of them were quite complicated, complicated things like analysis of variance, longhand without computers. And the more that I would drink, is the clearer this became. <laughs> then I found that there was a balance to a certain point, and then it all became nonsense again. But if I stopped at a certain level, my stress was reduced to such an, an extent that it made sense and I could follow it and then memorize what happened on the next line and the next line. Now, this has an interesting, how can I put it, link to public speaking, Tony. Um, not that I drink when I'm trying to follow your method, <laughs> but. But the process of it, learn, breaking it down and learning it bit by bit is, is what happened. And when I got over the fear of doing that, things became clearer. The only strange thing was standing outside the examination hall and I was the only person standing there drinking a can of special brew whilst <laughs> everyone else was drinking coffee. <laughs> but the thing is... It, it actually worked. Um, it got me into a reasonably relaxed state where I wasn't panicking and I could remember it and it just came back. And um, again, further studies showed, showed me that to learn complex things, you have to be in a relaxed state, in the right state, and then things go in easier. So, I mean... I completely agree. We do not advocate that you should be drinking special brew before you get on a stage, deliver a public speech. But actually there's a lesson in there, isn't there? You know, we can laugh about this now, but you knowing and understanding that, that that was one, a coping mechanism. It was that you needed to be in a certain state. And on previous episodes of the podcast, I've talked a lot about how you need to get in state, how you need to prepare. And it was your preparation method, knowing that, you know, and we can link this back to what you're doing at the minute, those frequencies that we work on. And that was a, a coping mechanism, you know, which was the drink to calm yourself before you go into an exam, which is similar to the take the antidepressants to be able to stabilize your state from the mania through to the depression. Um, and we're going to come back to this shortly, but I think it's really important for our listeners to know. I think what's really inspiring right now as well, you know, this is being recorded just when it's been announced that we're going into our second kind of phase of lockdown, if you like. Um, I'm going to release this episode 
earlier than planned because I think it's really important for people to know and understand that there is light at the end of the tunnel. There will be many people facing right now and as much as you're laughing around it now, you know, you can have a drink before the exam. You face some really challenging times and I think that's really inspirational for our listeners to know and understand that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that leads to kind of why you're doing what you're doing. There are so many things that I want to pick out of this and I think we're not even yet at where, you know, your your desire to to communicate more effectively and where you learn to become a public speaker came from. But the thread that I keep seeing is determination and perseverance, facing challenge after challenge and instead of allowing it to hold you back or pull you down you've actually used that to fuel you you know you've had two choices along the way and when people listen to your story often maybe you're when delivering it will focus on the kind of the negatives of it but what's overwhelming for me is your ability to just get on with things your ability to not let those things hold you down and I think that would be really inspiring for people who um, right now, we're maybe facing some challenges. Within previous episodes, especially around the story, I've talked around the hero's journey, and I think you encompass that. You embody the hero's journey. You know, things that you faced in your lifetime help people like me put into perspective. You know, the challenges that I think I'm facing or have faced, when it's like absolutely nothing in comparison to other people. And I think that perspective is really important. We talk around GPS. I've talked about a few different um, speaker trainings that you've been a part of. I've spoken about it on previous episodes, that gratitude, perspective and service, GPS, gratitude, perspective and service. And I think you you kind of, you embody all of that, don't you? The gratitude for what you've gone through and how that's helped you to become the person you are. The perspective around for you being able to overcome these challenges and for us to realise that maybe some of the things that we're facing aren't quite as bad as we think. Service you through because you sharing your story is massively inspiring. And in fact, I'd like to move on to that next as the, the next question is how did you come to be in a position, you know, to realise that your story is really inspirational, that you can help and support other people and, and how you got into public speaking? Sure. Um, I'll just say a bit about my earlier career, which might put this in perspective. Um, after leaving college, I was homeless and jobless for quite a while. And being homeless was one of the scariest things I've ever come across or positions that I've been in. Um, it was difficult you couldn't even sign on to get benefits because you need an address to get benefits and it was a really rough period then eventually I got together with some other people and we hit upon the idea of setting up a short life housing co-op because there are these streets of empty houses which nobody lived in some of them were inhabited by elderly people who were waiting to be moved out but we thought why why leave these houses they've been empty for a while so we approached the council negotiated with them to take over these properties on a peppercorn rent until they were going to knock them down and then redevelop the whole area. And it was amazing what happened then. We set up what was effectively a sort of hippie commune where there are a bunch of homeless people living in these empty properties, which we fixed up to the required standards. 
and we sort of did the shopping for the elderly people who were still living there, made sure that they didn't get break, broken into, and lived an interesting existence together for a while. I then got a job when I <clears throat> went to sign on one day, and they said, I've got a job for you. I said, what's that? And they said, the other side of the counter, you start Monday. So I then worked in the unemployment benefit office, learning how the system worked, and then subsequently got a job with a voluntary organization advising homeless people. Then I got a job with the local authority as a housing officer and rapidly over eight years went from housing officer to director of housing for London Borough Wolf and Forest, where I found myself managing over 20,000 properties, 500 staff, and working with some very difficult politicians. What that did on one hand was satisfy one of my missions at the time, which was to ensure that as many people as possible were housed in a decent property, because having been homeless, that was a driving factor behind that. And I think that's what pushed me through to that extent. On the other hand, my personal life was a complete disaster at that point. I got married to somebody who was a violent alcoholic and very much mirrored the behavior of my parents in that day. She was very much similar to my father. Now, you would have thought somebody had done psychology would have worked all this out. <laughs> but, uh, it's taken me to now to look back subsequently and think, I see now why that's happened. And having studied things like um, Dr. John Demartini's method, I've also learned that things work out in balance and that whilst things might be awful in one area of your life, they might be much better in the other side. So whilst professionally, my trajectory was going skyrocketing upwards, my personal life was going through the floor. Now, during that period as well, my mental health deteriorated to such an extent that I was having to have more and more medication and electroconvulsive therapy. For those of you who aren't aware of what that, are, that is, it involves placing electrodes in your head and giving you an electric shock, which is supposed to help with what's called intransigence or difficult to shift depression. What it did for me was actually destroy bits of my short-term memory. But for other people, apparently it has actually helped them. So there are different schools of thought with regard to how that works. I also had to take some time off work during that period because I fell apart completely to the point where I couldn't even leave the house. Now during that period, the psychiatrist actually came to visit me at home and he saw all the empty bottles, which my alcoholic ex-wife had left all over the place following the party from the night before. And he just said, you don't need a doctor or a psychiatrist, you need a lawyer. Now, if I'd listened to him then and taken his advice, my life would have been quite different. But I didn't, and I stayed. <laughs> and I tried to make things work, as many people do in this situation. Anyway, that came to a natural conclusion at some point, um, ended up in the divorce court and the divorce judge lowered her glasses and just said, Mr. Brown, I'm giving 90% to your wife 
and you'll pay your son's school fees until he's 18. And when I was about to say, well, where the hell am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to live on? She just said, if you don't shut up, I'll have you taken down. Now, that, at that point, one court officer grabbed one arm, the other one grabbed the other. My solicitor put his finger to his lips, shook his head, waved his hand and mouthed, let it go, which I had to do. Now, by this time, we had had a son who was seven at the time. And I then had to work out how I was going to comply with the court's decision. Around that time as well, my employment came to an end. So all these things happened at once. I was called in by the chief executive who said, there's no right way or wrong way to say this. They want you out. So in a flash, everything went. And it was time to start again. Now, after again being homeless for a while, um, I obtained some employment as a play worker in a nursery. And that involved getting the kids breakfast ready, walking them to school, those who went to school, and for the others, just playing with them. These were aged between about, well, from babies to about two or so, playing with them and ensuring that they were fed properly, changed, and so on. And I did that for about a year and a half. That was a real learning experience as well. Um, I'd never done anything like that, never worked with kids before. And also seeing the situation that their parents were in too. And that, that was quite an eye opener. Then I sort of came across the idea of advising other local authorities on housing, which I've been doing for a long time. So I thought that's something I'm good at. And I found that there were agencies that could get you roles doing this. So I signed up with every agency I could find. And hey presto, a new career was born as a consultant, roving consultant. And I went all over the country for about 10 years advising local authorities on their housing strategies. Now, because I had nowhere to live, it was fantastic because it meant that I was put up in either hotels, bed and breakfasts, or I could rent a place whilst I was doing that, which meant A, that I had a roof over my head, B, a job, and C, I could pay whatever the court had told me I have to pay for my son's education and upkeep until he's 18. So all of that worked out strangely. Um, and then eventually I found a permanent job in London, which I came back to. And among my travels, I picked up somebody else who moved into my house with me. And uh, I'll come on to that in a bit. Oh, so much in there. I've been writing tons of notes as we've gone along. Again, there were always, I found that when I interview people, there were always recurring themes. And one of the things is that you said, you know, as a psychologist, as someone who studied psychology, you would think that you would be able to kind of self-diagnose, identify the situation when the psychologist came to you and said, you, know, you need a lawyer, not psychology help. But that sometimes we are too close to a situation, which is where we don't necessarily see, you know, we can't see the woods for the trees. Um, another theme is that the balance. So bioresonance and what you talk about will come to again later on is around the 40s and this balance. And that seems to be the thing that was always missing for you. 
you know, when you were, the fact that you even became homeless and went from, you know, always it's overcoming adversity that becoming homeless and jobless. And then I think that, that there's a theme and whether this is something that comes from, you know, your biological father or not, is this entrepreneurial spirit that you have that you got together with another group of people who again theoretically shouldn't have been in a position where they could get from being homeless to being actually running a business effectively to create this kind of commune you call it the hippie commune but you saw an opportunity there was an entrepreneurial spirit to go from this position of negativity of being homeless and jobless to actually not only helping yourself but helping other people and that service theme continues all of the way because you then got a job helping other homeless people always serving people became you know the, the fact that you are destined for great things and whether that's because you're inspired to do that or you were told as a youngster that that's what you should do to get to the position of director of housing but this balance was still never there because while you were skyrocketing in your career you know relationships and personal life were suffering so much so you use the analogy of, of John Martini, Dr. John Martini, and he talks about this, that we always live on a, a balance of challenge and support. And when we're being overly supported somewhere, a challenge will somehow magically manifest itself elsewhere or vice versa. When things, when there is a lot of challenge in our life, we have to find a way to support. And I just think it's so inspiring that you've been able to overcome these challenges Again, there's going to be many things in there that many of our listeners will be able to relate to. When you talk about being told, you know, you don't need a, a psychologist or a doctor, you need a lawyer. And you said, if at that point I'd have taken note or I'd have listened, so often we will hear things but not really listen. You know, we'll be told things, but we have to be told them again and again and again, or we have to experience it ourselves. But you use the phrase start again, and that's something that you've done so many times. And that in itself is massively inspiring to anyone, especially right now, while people are potentially facing a lot of change within their life, or they feel like there's no equilibrium, there is no balance in life right now, is that you, again, start into a care-driven role, you know, looking after young children, something that you've never done before. Um, you took the role because it was a necessity more than anything else to, you know, create a lifestyle for yourself, to be able to provide for your son and be able to adhere to the judges, what sound like truly horrific circumstances of giving your alcoholic ex-wife 90%. And, and I think that shows a sign of the times at that point being, you know, the wife and the caregiver always get the, the, the gift and, you know, dad can go out and earn. And that you still had this level of responsibility and you were not going to let it fall by the wayside. You know, you've got to look after your son. So you continue to do it. Um, and I find it intriguing that you went into a caregiving role, even if it wasn't intentional, that there's always an element of care, service and support in what you've done. But that one phrase, which I've written down, and I think I say it to our listeners all of the time, is you ask yourself, what am I good at? To get from the job role that you did for a year and a half, didn't necessarily want to stick with what am I good at? And then this new career as a consultant came out about. We talk to our, our listeners all of the time and saying, you know, when you're looking at public speaking, when you're looking at getting your message out there, what do you really enjoy? What are you passionate about? Or what are you really good at? And I think this just kind of brings it home that you can achieve great things if you put yourself in the right state to be able to do that. So you then became a consultant. You started living this kind of successful lifestyle again. What would you say have been 
the the biggest characteristic traits or the things that have helped you most through all of these this roller coaster effectively of a life up to this point that we've reached right now where you were in the consultant role and um, within the housing sector what do you think would be with the characteristics personality traits or the the skill set that you had that have enabled you to overcome so many obstacles and barriers i think you just mentioned it there it's solving problems so it's pitching up in a new council or housing association looking at what the problem is is it a hr related problem is it a financial problem is it a service problem customer problem and then working out what is the required action sometimes it's very clear what it is that needs doing um, and so you put in place a plan and say this is what needs to happen and put in place a project plan saying this is what needs to occur this is the timeline these are the resources required and it's all done very logically but sometimes as many people who go into these roles will find out is that you're being brought in how can i put it as a sledgehammer or to do something entirely different to what you're, you're supposed to be doing. You might, for instance, be brought in and find out that you're required to gather evidence on someone to remove from their post, um, or that you're required to monitor somebody to ensure that they fail mm. assessment or whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing. And when you come across those, you have a choice. You can either continue doing what they want you to do or you can say well actually that's it i'm out and fortunately as a consultant i was able to many times just say no that doesn't doesn't resonate with me i'm, I'm off mm. find someone else to do the dirty work yeah i think and that that's a great piece of advice for our listeners is you you do have a choice a lot of the time people think that they are stuck i've got no choice i've got to do it um, and you say you were fortunate in that position, but you created that position for yourself. Um, another thing that I wanted to identify there, because as much as quite often, so if, if we were to ask you, would you consider yourself to be, you know, a public speaker in most people's understanding of public speaker, many people listening might think that you're not because you're not the kind of stand on a stage, deliver a, uh, a speech, deliver a sale at the end of it. You're not necessarily known for that. But you've actually always done some forms of public speaking. So you use the example of problem solving as a consultant. You had to pitch to housing directors or to pitch to different housing associations. So there was always an element of public speaking. Um, but now what you're doing is, it's not the standard, it's not the norm of public speaking. So what you're doing is getting your message out there. So you came across this bioresonance, which you experienced yourself and got the results from. And I think that's important for us to, to make a point of to our listeners as well, is that when we talk about if you want to get your message out there, quite often it's not about standard public speaking or delivering a sale, etc. That often it's something you've overcome, an obstacle, or it's a, a product or service that you yourself have gained a result from. And now obviously you're really passionate about bioresonance and this is showing through. So tell us a little bit about how you, how you and I actually got to meet one another, how you came across unlimited success and the, the public speaking training. What made you join in with Expert Speaker Revolution in the first place? Right. Um, if I just rewind a bit and hit upon something which I really want to get across to people at the moment. 
and that's that we're coming up to Christmas, um, kind of Christmas that most of us have never thought about having before. We don't know if we're going to be able to be with or see our loved ones. Um, Christmas is stressful at any time. Any lawyer will tell you that most divorces occur in January after the Christmas break. This time it's going to be more difficult. We're just going into lockdown. Um, unemployment is rising. Business failures are rising. Relationships are breaking down. Home repossessions are occurring. Evictions for rent are occurring. None of this is good news. Now, if I can just dip back into some of my past here as well. When I got back to London after roving the country doing consultancy work, I was in a relationship with somebody and a lot of people went through this around 2008, 2009. All the contracts dried up, no work. Big mortgage, what am I going to do? This led to stress in the relationship. Um, then all the letters coming through the letterbox, you're falling behind with your credit card bills, uh, you're falling behind with your mortgage and so on and so on until I started to get the, your court date for eviction and repossession is. Now, after having gone to seek as much advice as possible from people, realized that there was not much I could do about that if there was no more work forthcoming. The relationship got worse and worse and worse and ended up with this particular person pulling a grandfather clock down onto my head. Um, and I realized again, I'd repeated a pattern. I'd got into a relationship with somebody who was violent and that person left after that because I said, I'm going to call the police. And that's that. This was at Christmas time. In fact, it was Christmas Eve. By now, I didn't know what to do. I just had all the letters piled up, telling me I was in trouble for all the money I owed. The woman who I'd hoped would have been supporting me just walked out the door. And I thought, I don't know what to do anymore. I found myself in a bath, two bottles of wine, and as many pills as I could find gathered around the house. And I took the lot. I don't know what happened then, no idea. All I know to this day is that I woke up, and I didn't even know it was Christmas Day, but I woke up and I was in the mental hospital um, up the road to where I lived, and I was in a locked ward, and I had been sectioned. Now, being in a place like that was absolutely, I don't know, um, it was frightening. There were people running around screaming. There were lots of horrible smells, a mixture of bodily smells and medication and disinfectant. The door to the ward was locked so you couldn't get out. I had been taken in. I didn't have any clothes. I had all these hospital gowns on, no clothes at all. I didn't have my phone. I didn't have anything. And I was being medicated up to the eyeballs with goodness knows what. So I was just drifting through day after day um, and then having periodically further electroconvulsive therapy. 
I didn't know how the hell I was going to get out of that place until luckily I found a computer in there that we were allowed to use. And I went on Facebook and I didn't have any contacts at all. And I just scrolled through Facebook and I saw an old school friend on Facebook who I hadn't seen for probably 20 years. Anyway, I messaged him and said, hi, how are you doing? Could you do me a big favor? I'm in a mental hospital and I'm not allowed out unless I've got somebody who's going to take care of me. Could you come and spring me and tell them that you'll look after me? So he drove down from Warwick to London and he sprung me from the hospital and got me out. But that is an experience that I do not want anybody else to go through. This Christmas, a lot of people are going to be isolated. A lot of people are confined and a lot of people are scared. If you're in that position, please do reach out to somebody. Do ask for help. Do not, for whatever feeling you might have, feel that you shouldn't or that you can't do this. If I'd known that I could reach out to someone or if I had someone to reach out to before I reached that point, that would not have happened. And I really, really don't want anyone to reach that point without reaching out, telling somebody and asking for help. Unbelievable and such a raw emotion there. And thank you so much for sharing that because it will be helpful from a number of different perspectives. One, for people to understand that you know, the person they see before them, the person they're hearing on this, on this podcast. So people have to make the assumption that, oh, well, it's all right for them. You face horrific challenges and come through them too. And I couldn't agree more, you know, lockdown is going is to be really difficult for a lot of people. And, you know, Christmas coming up, the fact that you were in, you know, you encompass all of the reasons at that point why many people face these really, you know, depressive states or even as, as horrific as it is, you know, to get to the suicidal point where you did. Death, relationship broken down, you know, feeling like the world is against you and nowhere to turn. And, you know, to find yourself waking up, I, I can only even imagine, I can't even imagine what that was like. And the theme that runs through again is this perseverance, this, you know, desire to succeed, that you found a solution to that problem, the, the problem-solving state that you found yourself in, was I need to get out of this mental hospital. And I think another important point is you'd not been in touch with this particular friend, you say, for somewhere in the region of 20 years, but that if you're facing challenges, people will help. And I think our listeners need to hear that too, you know, this guy who's not seen you for 20 odd years, who you were asking this huge favor of because it's a big drive and you know the fact that he did that shows that people do want to help and support you and there is always a solution and always a way out. And I think what we'll do is at the end of the podcasting with the notes, we'll put some um, places for support. We'll put some um, contact numbers, email addresses, et cetera, for the areas that you can get support from, whether that be for mental health or for physical health um, situations and that you've, you've overcome so many challenges that, you know, to have gone from that position. And this was, how long ago was this? The, the suicide attempt? 2000. When, sorry? 2000. Christmas 2012, 11, 12. 
2012. So we're like eight years on from there now, almost nine years. What has happened during those last nine years? Where are you at now? And how have you got to the point where you're now sitting, being interviewed on many people, not just my podcast, to share your inspiring story? Um, what happens subsequently is I came across somebody who I'd known as a work colleague many years ago. Um, and she asked what I was doing and I explained that I was sitting in my house alone and that things hadn't gone particularly well over the past few years. It'd been a bit of a roller coaster. Asked how she was doing. She said, oh, can I come over and see you? So I said, well, let's leave it a couple of weeks, but then you can come because A, the house is a complete tip full of letters and God knows what else. Very embarrassing. Um, but then eventually I said, okay, come over and see me after I tied it up a bit. And we reminisced over old times and we eventually got together. Now, after a while, I can't carry on like this. And she said, why don't you rent your house out and move in with me? Okay, well, that will stop them from repossessing it. So that's what I did. The trouble is that it was a three-story house and I, I suppose because the rent on it would have been quite high, people tend to share houses in London. So a lot of the lettings agents would say, look, we've got two families, can they use it? Yep, that's fine. So I had some of them do that and then after a number of people had wrecked it and I'd had it redone a number of times, I thought, okay, the last time I'm going to fix it up and then see what happens. I got a call from the lettings agent who said, there's a guy who wants it, he'll take it tomorrow, he'll pay what you're asking. Let this guy have it. Turns out he never actually moved in. And the neighbors kept telling me, have a look at your place from the outside. Bins overflowing, curtains drawn. All of you in property know what that means. Hmm. Um, I said to the lettings agent, meet me down there. And five minutes before we were supposed to meet, he rang up and said, I've had a bereavement, can't come. So I said, okay, well, I'm going anyway. And I saw this young man standing outside the front door smoking. And I'd said, one of the things, no smoking in the property. And I said, hi, how are you doing? Do you know who I am? He said, no. I said, I'm the landlord. I own the house. Do you mind if I have a look around? He said, no, come in. I thought, yes. Went in, had a look. Oh, come with me. Who lives here? And he showed me around, there were 16 people living in there. They'd wow. taken all the furniture out, the living room, the dining room, got fridges in, <laughs> goodness knows what. And it was an HMO. Um, so, cut a long story short, managed to get them out. And I said to my partner at the time, I said, I've had enough of this. And she said, all right, sell it. So I sold it. And then we went on a... What do you call it? One of these property courses, <laughs> which some of you might have got. Not with Progressive, it was a different one at this time. And we got a coach. And this coach was, uh, I don't know, a bit mystical. He wasn't like a normal property coach. On one hand, he would send me all these things to work out, you know, ROC, ROTI, all this kind of stuff. And he'd sent me one week, he sent me 60 of these calculations to do. And you know what my feeling about maths and calculations are like. So, <laughs> Imagine what that did. 
<laughs> There's the brew. And um, anyway, his, his, <laughs> his other approach was a bit sort of otherworldly. And he said, I want you to read these books. And he gave me books by Joe Dispenza, Dr. John Demartini, T. Harvecker, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, this is far more interesting than ROTI and ROC and stuff like that. Um, but I thought, still need to learn that anyway. And we thought, actually, we're not going to make any money in London. We, we need to move up north. So we moved up north and we were just about to buy a place up near Halifax to rent out the first one. And that, that's when I ended up on the floor, curled up in a ball, unable to wee. And that's how I sort of stumbled into bioresonance. Okay, so now you stumbled into bioresonance. You had amazing results in a relatively short period of time to go from having been on antidepressants and, and medication, pain medication for 40 and six years respectively to now being on no medication, fitter and healthier than you've ever been. And, you know, you yourself are the testimonial for bioresonance. So how did you then come across public speaking uh, and what's your mission in public speaking now? When we came across Progressive, um, you know, because then we went on number of their courses, flips, HMOs, um, lots of progressive courses, but then went on one of them and it was the expert speaker discovery day. And that was fascinating. And I thought better than the property courses, this one's grabbed my attention. And we went on that and thought, that's really good. And then we heard about this expert speaker week-long session and had to think and thought, okay, let's do that. So we both did that and that was an eye-opener. For me, it was like a week's long therapy session. <laughs> you don't realize what you're going to be doing until it happens. Other people open up to you, you open up to other people. And you realize that everybody's got something in their past. Everybody has. And that it has affected them profoundly one way or another. And we're all bound to secrecy, so nobody tells anybody else's secrets to anybody else. But what it does, A, is it makes you feel comfortable in opening up and telling your story. Secondly, people start to see the value in those hidden bits of themselves that they've never revealed. And what that does is it has a knock-on effect. Other people will then open up, and it means that everybody then realizes, one, that everybody's got something to share that can help other people, and that secondly, what you have is of value as well. After discovering that, we were shocked on this course, um, where you start off having to make a speech for five minutes, and then you have this day in the middle, which is, how can I put it? Like a baptism of fire. That's when you have to open up and share your innermost stories with each other. And then you're told that you have to speak for 30 minutes, 30 minutes without notes at the end of this course. Now, everybody by this time is 
wanting to go to the toilet when they're told that. It's, it's, it's really frightening. But we are taught that there is a system and a process. And when it's broken down, it's not that scary as long as you understand the process and you learn it. And as they keep telling us, practice, practice, practice. And the more that you do it is the easier it becomes. And I'm somebody who hates this kind of stuff. But as long as you follow what is taught, it actually becomes a lot easier. So what that week-long thing did for me was it made me realize that maybe I've got something that is worth sharing with people that can help some people and also open up discussions so that other people don't sit with this thing that they don't ever want to talk about and that they feel, I suppose, they're given permission to let it out and discuss it and also realize that it's nothing to be ashamed of and that it's actually, how does that advert go? It's good to talk. <laughs> I love that. So again, similarly to what is now your massive passion by you stumbled across so on the property side and many of our listeners will have been on the property side of the trainings before they've come along to the public speaking side you attended the one day discovery day from there found some value and moved on to our five day training um, and, and the theme again of service comes out serving other people helping other people sharing your story but that you have value to give and this is something that I say in every single episode of the podcast is that every one of us has value to give and you give that value before you lead to the victory and the victory for you is obviously that you're you're getting your message out there of the importance of bioresonance making more people aware of it as i said myself i'd not heard of it before i didn't know what it was i've never had an understanding of it but also how many people you're able to help as a result of that so you're now opening clinics around this, you're sharing your message. And for, for those listening who have fears or doubts or concerns around public speaking, I think the reason we need more people like Tony on the podcast is, you know, it says, oh, I hate doing things like that. The public speaking isn't just about the, the standard, you know, misconception of it, of standing on a stage and delivering, that it's about being able to communicate effectively, being able to share your story and, you know, the heroes your story is so massively inspiring Tony and I think the more people who hear your story the more people will be inspired by it the more people you will support and help and give value to and I'm absolutely honoured that you've shared your story with our listeners today so just a couple of final points before I leave you conscious of your time what is the best piece of advice you can give to anyone who is now fearful or has concerns or feels that they can't be a public speaker? Give me one top tip for those people, please. Think about something in your life that you probably don't want to share with people, but you found a challenge. Re configure why you don't want to share that and think about how what you have may be of use and of help to somebody else. Then take a deep breath and work out how you can spread your message and tell your story. Thank you.
And for anyone who wants to know either more about you, your journey, your your products and services that you offer, wants to know about bioresonance, where is the best place for people to be able to follow you, get in touch with you, or hear more about what you've got to say? Right. We are just finalising the website of our business, which is called Total Body Health. And in the meantime, if people want to know more, please direct message me via Facebook, Tony Courtney Brown. Amazing. Thank you so much. And we'll put that down as a resource for anyone who wants to get in touch with you. From my perspective, I want to say a huge thank you for you sharing so much time with us today, being so open and honest and sharing your message and your story with our listeners. It's massively inspiring. It's going to help and support so many people. And now more than ever, we need to be helping more people. So thank you so much for being a guest on today's podcast. Any final words of advice, anything you want to finish on before we say goodbye to our listeners? Um, firstly, please do reach out if you need help. And also to get through this difficult period, some do's and don'ts. So as well as do's, um, reaching out, please do try and exercise. If you have a pet, please cuddle that pet. If you haven't got one, see if you can get one. They're fantastic. Keep in touch with other people. Remember, you're not alone. And also think about how you can help others as well. And as for don'ts, don't watch the news. Don't listen to exaggeration. And don't believe everything that you hear. Thank you so much, Tony. So everyone listening, this has been Tony Gordon-Brown. It's been my privilege to introduce and to interview you today. Everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode of Presenting Pitching and Public Speaking, and we will see you next time.